Hello, and welcome to The Main Question, UMaine's podcast series about the research and creative activity happening at UMaine. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. In this episode, we take a look at all the stuff we buy and use in our daily life, and an interesting economic and cultural phenomenon that can give the things we own multiple lives in effect. If you've ever bought something at a yard sale or a flea market, if you've ever left a piece of furniture or some other item out on the sidewalk for someone else to take and use, you've taken part in the reuse economy. And it's a bigger part of the overall main economy than you might imagine. Cindy Eisenhower, Associate Professor of Anthropology, who also works with the Climate Change Institute and the Senator George Mitchell Center, has studied this topic for several years now. And she poses our main question for today's discussion. The big question is, what is a reuse economy, and why is Maine's reuse economy so particularly vibrant? Well, welcome. Appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us about this uh, very, very interesting topic. Appreciate that. So let, let's start, let's define some terms. What is the reuse economy? Okay, it's a good question because people are oftentimes really confused uh, by the term. Uh, they think it's recycling, um, which we're all very familiar with. But when we're talking, at least for the uh, this project and in a broader perspective, reuse has to do with the transfer of objects um, for their ex- the, the purpose for which they were originally produced. So we're not talking about changing things, but f- extending their lifetimes um, through a transfer of ownership. So that can be all sorts of things. And this is where it gets so broad. It can be a sale, which is what we oftentimes think of. And this could be Craigslist or um, at a yard sale. It could be a gift. So just passing children's clothes on to a friend. It could be a barter. It could be a swap. Um, it could be an object found. So someone leaves it on the curb or at the transfer station and someone else picks it up. So lots of variety there. But the the two things to remember are that it's an object being used still for its original purpose and that it's a transfer of ownership. So we wouldn't include things like um, using an old tire as a planter. Um, That would be considered repurposing. And uh, for this project, we're we're really interested in the economic impact of those exchanges. And so when the exchange doesn't happen, um, as in repurposing, or if I'm just using a cup uh, that's disposable more than once, that would be, we would call that repurposing. for the purposes of this project, so. How, how big an impact does a uh, reuse economy have on Maine's economy? Well, you know, um, that's a big question, and it's one of the reasons we undertook this project, was to try to find out. Um, unfortunately, it's a really hard one to figure out, believe it or not, because there are portions of the reuse economy that are very much in the formal economic sector. So we can look at industrial codes and all of the businesses that are categorized under used merchandise, and we can tally those and total those. But the problem is, is that we have an incredible amount of the reuse economy that's informal. It's underground. It's not um, easy to track. And so I I can't give you yet a really clear number, um, but we are working on one. And I can give you a bit of a a, some insight. One is that we have recently uh, just finished a survey. So we sent a survey out to Maine households all over the state. And we had about a little uh, over 600 families respond. And in that survey, we asked them in a given year, in a 12-month cycle, to estimate about how much they think they spend on used goods. And when we tally that all up and we extrapolate it uh, to a standard Maine population, we're talking about 
just on used goods, about $570 million each year. Pretty substantial. Big number. Yeah. <laughs> and that does not include, for example, the cost of like refurbishing, repairing things for reuse. We're still working on that number. But um, we suspect that when we tally informal and formal, um, we're, we're talking some numbers that rival some of the industries that we really invest a lot in here in Maine. And yet this is kind of a hidden value that we tend to underestimate, but it's something that means a lot to Mainers and um, is really impactful for a lot of people. So Anybody who's driven up Route 1 and seen the flea markets or driven just around generally and seen yard sale signs know that um, you know, the reuse economy is certainly, that's, that's part of it. Um, Maine has a robust history with this. Why, why do you think that is? Ooh, that's such a good question and one that I think is really exciting. And we've spent quite a bit of time scouring back through the historical lit, um, reading firsthand accounts of folks who've been involved in the sector for a long time. The tendency is for people to assume first and foremost that this is the product of a state that, relative to other states, is is geographically marginal and is has has had periods of economic marginality. That's what I hear people say first and foremost is, oh, this is because Maine is a relatively poor state. Interestingly enough, while that's the kind of common response, what we're finding very much uh, challenges that idea. Um, it, it, it has to do, and this is maybe not surprising either, but it has to do with um, this thrift mentality, right? A very long history of self-sufficiency, living on Yankee frugality, you hear ex- that term. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's it's a lot of anecdotal evidence that over time piles up. But then, you know, I, I'm an anthropologist, so my primary research method is actually getting out and talking to people. And what we're hearing is that this is not just about, in fact, the numbers don't support the idea that most people who are involved are doing it for economic necessity. They're doing it for a sense of freedom and, you know, living on their own terms, living a life that's good to them. And a big portion of this has to do with care, the idea of expressing not only care and stewardship for these objects and for reducing waste, care for the land, but also care for other people. So um, a lot of folks who, you know, are, are flea market vendors or who shop these secondhand shops or volunteer in these donation centers, um, they're doing it out of a sense of care for people, for communities to give, you know, low uh, or um, affordable goods to families who need them to make sure that we prevent waste. It's really uh, much more complex than just this kind of simple economic calculus of people don't have enough money to buy things new. That just doesn't prove out. This sort of leads me to my next question. The um, current state of the environment, you see stories every day about plastic in the ocean and birds choking on plastic and, and, and that kind of thing. And the play that gets on social media, does that sort of rev this up or supercharge this a little bit? Absolutely. And, and it's a big part of the reason that I th- this project has come to fruition is um, there was a period of time when I was doing some consulting for the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. And one of the big movements in sustainability is to try to move toward a more circular economy, right, to, to design waste out of the system. Because we know, sure, recycling is great, but it takes inputs energy, resources to make those materials, those wasted materials back into something new. If you can move up the commodity chain and design, cradle to cradle design, you can design those that waste out, you get so many more, not only environmental efficiencies, but also economic efficiencies. And so there's been a big movement um, in cities and states 
um, all over the world to move toward more circular economic systems. And a part of that is increasingly becoming reuse. And so if we think about this whole cradle-to-grave system, we can have interventions all along that. But increasingly, we're recognizing that the kind of end of the, the stream efforts are just not as, as effective as we need them to be. So we've got to move up. And reuse has really become this big policy focus. So the problem is, though, that there have been so few studies on reuse. Why do people do it? We, we know what the economic or the environmental benefits are. We know very little about the economic and the social elements of this. And questions like, you know, how do we support reuse in ways that are socially equitable, um, that not only protect the environment, but also make sure that we're not um, formalizing a sector that a lot of people depend on for their livelihoods and excluding people. So there are a lot of big questions there that um, we're hoping this project can really feed into those efforts to reduce um, pollution in the in the ocean, but also um, do it in, in fair and equitable ways. So, so for a lot of cities and towns, waste disposal is a cost, and and uh, I, I was surprised to learn it's it's among the top costs for municipalities. So, mm-hmm. how does this uh, sort of help mitigate those costs? Does it? It, it, it really does. Um, so we're talking about for a lot of cash-strapped municipalities all around Maine, and it's not just Maine. It's a problem everywhere. The tax base that's generated, a huge portion of that needs to go toward disposal. And what's crazy about it is there have been studies that show that you know, up to 30% of the things that we're throwing away are fully usable, right? Wow. They're, you know, they're products that could be extracted. And so the more that we can encourage people to extend the lifetime of, pro- of products, not only are we reducing waste at the end of the commodity chain, but we're also subverting some of the demand for new product production. So we can think about the whole life cycle of the energy, the materials, the resources, the water, the land area that was um, conserved by not uh, driving demand for goods that we could just repurpose. So it's a big it's a big part of it for sure. And um, thinking about Maine municipalities, uh, they're really interested. We've been going to the Maine Resource Recovery Association meetings for the past few years. And this is a big push of theirs too, is, is how, how can we help municipalities to reduce um, through reuse? Many of them have transfer uh, stations and this summer, our research team has visited many of those, and it's, Ron, you wouldn't believe the amount of traffic that moves through those, the amount of goods that move through those right. uh, transfer station shops. I have, maybe of all the things that we've learned in this project, that's maybe one of the most surprising, is just to look at the sheer volume. There's one transfer station um, in southern Maine that has been tracking how much they've diverted from the landfill, and it's absolutely amazing. I, I, I'm sorry I don't have it on top of my head, but it's uh, hundred. It's really substantial and shocking. So many of the uh, products we have now are use it, it breaks, you throw it away kind of thing, and they're not repairable. Your TV, your phone, what, what, what have you. I mean, maybe your phone is not a good example, but a lot of electronics. Is that changing a little bit? You, you, I know you looked at repair clubs, repair shops. In Sweden, there's even a taxpayer rebate if you have something repaired. Can, so talk about that uh, that part of this. Yeah, I do I do think that the mentality is changing for sure. Um, there are increasingly policy propositions to try to support reuse and repair. So we have all over this country uh, propositions for right to repair legislation, which would require a manufacturer to give the consumer the right to repair. Um, 
an item, whether it be, you know, through module-based design um, or, you know, in, in some cases there have been lawsuits over people who've tried to repair things because the idea is that they're infringing on uh, proprietary technology. And so that type of legislation is fighting back against that. Um, we also have some initiatives uh, around the world to change the tax structure so that if an item has been taxed once at new sale, that perhaps it shouldn't be taxed again um, at the secondhand uh, level. And yes, you mentioned Sweden. So Sweden's interesting. They have um, now entire malls dedicated to just secondhand really? products, and they're doing really well. Yes, old industrial spaces or old malls that have, you know, didn't do well and are abandoned, um, being reinvented for that purpose. And and much more retail, very curated collections that are of interest to a lot of people. Um, and then, yeah, here in the States, uh, there are several organizations working on reuse that are developing handbooks for how to do a good repair cafe, where you can get folks from the community that have a specific skill, how to fix a toaster, how to fix a bike, to come and um, volunteer their time to teach other people how to repair as well. Um, the state of Oregon, who is really a pioneer in this area, um, they have an entire statewide strategic plan for how to extend product lifetimes. They have a whole labor platform around how do we get more people trained again in repair function. Because these are lost arts. I mean, people used to work on their cars or fix their bikes. I mean, not a lot of particularly young people probably are doing that much anymore these days. Absolutely. Um, at least I think that's the perception. We're, we're trying to investigate that. We've talked with uh, several folks in the repair business around the Bangor uh, area so far, and we hope to extend that out. But it does seem like there might be a bit of a resurgence among young people. Um, at least, for example, a few places we've talked to in Portland that are cobblers um, are seeing a much more um, robust clientele in the younger sector. So that's encouraging. Um, on the other hand, um, to talk to folks in northern Maine, yes, it's these are practices that really need to be revived. So it, it, it does seem uneven, and, and I, I don't have a firm answer on that one yet, but I things are changing for sure, and I think in multiple directions sometimes. Right. How does social media play into this? Of course, we uh, a lot of people in Maine are familiar with Uncle Henry's, but now you have Facebook Swap and Sell, of course, Craigslist, you know, any number of ways online to swap, sell, trade. Uh, is that uh, fueling this as well? Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, you know, it makes sense. There are so many, uh, what economists would say, transaction costs associated with secondhand consumption. Sometimes it's really difficult to find what you're looking for, uh, you know, if you're out browsing the secondhand shops, and it's almost like shopping via convenience rather than a targeted item. But when you have the ability to go online and do a targeted search for what you're looking for in a specific geographical radius, it really does reduce the amount of time and effort people have to put in to finding things. So um, at the same time, we see that uh, many of the brick-and-mortar stores uh, either are moving toward a more hybrid model where they sell some things online or list them online, but also have them available for people to see uh, in person. So um, yeah, we're seeing big shifts there. And we're seeing that while many people lament the idea that younger people aren't as engaged in this the secondhand economy, um, we're seeing evidence that they are engaging. It's just in a new form, right? They're doing much more online. Um, but we, we also are asking questions about what happens when a lot of these reused products are 
um, captured by national sellers reselling markets. So for example, like ThreadUp is now, uh, which is a, a reused clothing service um, where you can sell your clothes to ThreadUp and they'll resell them for you on a national platform. Oh, okay. They're searchable, right? People all over the country could buy them. Um, so it's a great service and that you're getting goods to the places where people want them and need them. But it does raise questions for a place like Maine, where a lot of people are involved in this type of economic activity. And do we end up with kind of consolidation of the product in certain places? So those are questions we're investigating, too. Now, I know you looked at this aspect of it when people face uh, political or social or natural disasters, uh, you know, that uh, that drives this and, and, and ramps it up a little bit more, and not only economically, but socially. Is that uh, is that enter into this? So I'm an anthropologist, and we have... We're typically interested in much pretty broad timeframes, right? How do human societies adapt over time? How do we change? How do we um, understand our world and respond to it? And one piece of one particular part of anthropology has looked at how humans respond when markets crash, when natural disasters hit. And so to think about, social resilience, societal resilience, and what are some of the um, the factors that come into play there. And so part of this research, in addition to the climate benefits of reuse, the waste benefits of reuse, the e- economic, it has to do with how might these alternative means of procuring goods and these um, kind of informal social structures of exchange, how might they impact resiliency? Um, and so, yeah, we've we've been able to to do some really interesting work on this, uh, in large part thanks to my uh, partner Andrew Crawley, who's in the economics department, has um, done some looking at how, and this is on a national level, at how reuse markets respond in economic recessions, economic booms and busts. What do they do? And um, while one might guess that reuse markets would um, expand when the economy, the overall economy is contracting. That is true in a lot of places. What we find is that here in Maine, um, yes, there is a response, but that our economy, our reuse economy, remains consistently stronger than most other states, um, regardless of what the overall economy is doing. But because it does respond, it does suggest to us that um, from an economic standpoint, people might be using reuse as a means to kind of buffer the effects of other markets that might boom and bust. So that's pretty cool. But then in terms of the social aspect of this, I, I can't overemphasize enough how many people, when they talk to us about what they're doing and why they're participating, that it has to do with their community. And again, this idea of expressing care for others and the idea of creating these networks of exchange where people know each other, they trust each other, and they are able to find what they need through people. So there's a great quote from an antiques dealer um, that I actually found on the, um, I think it was on the Antiques Antiques Association webpage, that people aren't necessarily, I'm not going to get this right, but people aren't necessarily looking for things in the antiques market, as much as they're looking for the relationships, really, um, and to and the people, right? And and I think a lot of antique dealers know that they're looking for the story, the magic, the people associated um, more so than the object themselves. And um, that's a really interesting part of this project is that we're we're understanding increasingly that it is about 
you know, these tools for existing in a community, a, a caring community and a, and a place where you feel like you have networks um, for exchange, for sociality, for procurement. And maybe that has um, a positive impact when we think about what types of shocks might come our way. It interests me why this ultimately interests you as an anthropologist. Is it this economic uh, phenomenon and how it how it intersects with the culture and people? Is that what ultimately interests you as an anthropologist? Absolutely. I, what I would say about this project is that it's more than any other project I've ever done is it feels like it's at the perfect intersection of my interests. Um, it feels very much like my baby. <laughs> and it has to do with this idea that we've got, um, I'm an, I'm, I am an economic and environmental anthropologist, so it's got the environmental component of what, what are the emissions that are foregone when we reuse products rather than producing new ones? What, are, what is the waste foregone? What is the total life cycle benefit of all of this? Then it's got this social side that has to do with who's participating and why, and how can we understand that in order to drive more socially and culturally relevant and appropriate environmental policy. And then it's got this resiliency side that comes out of a long tradition of anthropology. Um, and I think f for most anthropologists, we're very interested in looking at what are the dominant logics. So what are the dominant economic logics? What are the dominant cultural logics? And how can we start to understand those as cultural constructions, right? That things that were built up over time by humans and are also able to be changed, right? To be shifted by new types of ideologies. And I think that, um, you know, it's really interesting to be able to talk to people and to learn from them why they're participating. And that's a, a great piece of this. Um, sometimes people will tell you it's not about the environment for them at all even though it is, right? You know, it, yeah. Um, some people will tell you that it's purely for the economics. It's a really wide-ranging phenomenon, but I think what's so neat about reuse as we think about the future is that clearly resources are going to be becoming more and more precious over time, more and more expensive. I think the writing is on the wall that we will eventually have to, as an entire society, reuse and recognize the value that still exists in already existing items. Um, and so business models are going to have to change. Uh, policies are going to have to change. People's behaviors are going to have to change. And so for, for me, what's really interesting about this is thinking about Maine's contemporary reuse economy, not only in its long historical trajectory and how it challenges some of our dominant ideas about um, disposability, about productivity and what where value comes from and where it exists, um, but that it also allows us to think about the future and how might we as a society adapt, knowing what we do know about natural resource depletion and climate change and increasingly scarce landfill space. Um, and could there potentially be lessons here in Maine uh, about how we move forward? That leads me to my final question is, where, where do you think this will go in five to 10 years as the population grows, as people are more mindful of what they buy and consume? Mm -hmm. where, where are we going to uh, head? Well, I think the, the policy trajectory is clearly already there. Uh, we see that all over the country. Uh, again, states that are doing entire platforms on this. Um, we see uh, cities that have developed whole reuse policies. We're heading in that trajectory. 
I also see that it's become very cool and hip um, in many urban markets to reuse. You know, the vintage lifestyle is on the rise for sure. Um, what it means for Maine is not entirely clear yet, but I do think that there's an awful lot of potential for us to kind of get ahead of this and to think about um, the value and the advantage of Maine's current reuse economy and how we can protect the people that inhabit it um, and make sure that um, we develop it in a way that's not only environmentally conscious and economically efficient, but also socially just um, to make sure that what I'm really concerned about is that um, as reuse becomes more and more formalized on multiple scales, um, that some of the folks who have long inhabited the space and long lent value um, through their labor, through their care, um, could potentially get excluded. And so how can we kind of protect those markets and make sure that um, they're accessible to everyone? Well, we'll be keen to see uh, where all this work goes. And uh, thank you so much for coming in and uh, sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find this in all of our podcasts in most of the places that podcasts are available. We welcome your feedback on this show and our series. Drop us a line at mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Liznet. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.